Titus chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 16. I'm going to read that and then we'll pray and we'll get started here, okay? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Father, we uh, ask for your grace this morning as we look at your truth, at your, at your word. Father, we pray that you might create... Uh, at this church, God, in our congregation at Lincoln Avenue, God, that you might create a people who are so saturated with the truth of the gospel that, God, that we can, we can see, we can spot error a mile away. We can, we can smell it uh, when it's around the corner. We can, um, our, our spirit detects it uh, at, at the most subtle level. Uh, Father, I pray that you would create a people who are grounded in the gospel, who are... Um, washed over in in the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified. Father, I pray that you might make us a people for whom the gospel is on our lips. Lord, that our children would hear the gospel from their moms and dads. That our, our, our next generation and the next generation would hear the gospel from their grandparents, from their great-grandparents. Father, I pray that you would create uh, a people uh, sound and grounded in the beauty of the gospel. Father, please do that. God, please make us those people. Father, we ask for grace as, as we look at this passage. God, I pray uh, for Hannah and for Junia. God, I pray that you'd bring her into the world safe, God, and, and healthy. And Father, we pray that it would, would happen soon. And God, that you would just pour out your, your protection and your provision. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we've been talking, uh, we, we talked actually a couple weeks ago about the uniqueness of the day that, in which we live in. Uh, if you remember, we talked about, I, I don't know that anybody could prove that today is worse, you know. People always kind of tend to think that about their own day, that it's worse than other time periods in, in, in the history world. And I, I have no way of knowing that. I don't know that anybody can ever know that. But there are definitely things about today that are unique, okay, and, and that ought, ought to be kind of paid attention to. And I think one of the things that is unique about today is, I don't know if there's any way to know that there was more false teaching than in the days of Paul. I mean, think about the days of Paul. I mean, he's walking through Athens, and, and there's literally like a, a row of a thousand gods, you know? And, and so I, I don't know that we could say there's more false teaching today than there was in Paul's day. No way to know that. But we could absolutely say there are more ways.
ways to distribute that false teaching today than that any other time in history, right? In Paul's day, you pretty much had to be in front of a false teacher. You had to be having a conversation with a false teacher, or possibly you might be reading, possibly, this would, would be a stretch, uh, probably not many people had access to this, me reading some kind of teaching that was false. But again, with, with the limited uh, number of, of distribution methods they had then, it's, it's probably not the case. But today, right now, at Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church in 2021, you could actually pull out your smartphone and you could you could call up Twitter and you could find false things about Jesus in about 10 seconds, right? Like, like you could find people saying untrue things about the gospel, untrue things about the Bible, untrue things about Christ. I mean, that, that's how easily accessible it is in our day. And so it, it, it's everywhere, right? And, and so more than ever, we need what Paul is encouraging Titus uh, with in this first chapter. If you remember the, the sequence of, of, of what we've looked at so far, in the first few verses, Paul talks about his own testimony. Okay, he, this is who I am. I'm a servant of God. I'm a, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle. I am for the faith. My mission is for the faith of God's elect, for the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. Right? He gives kind of, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And then he tells, he tells Titus, he said, I'm sending you back to Crete. I'm sending you back to all those towns that we evangelize, and I want you to appoint leaders, spiritual leaders. Now, what are the spiritual leaders supposed to do? They're supposed to give clear instruction in the scriptures for the sake of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness and the hope of eternal life, right? They're supposed to do just what Paul is about. They're supposed to teach people the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures. They're supposed to live that out in front of them, okay? Because without strong spiritual gospel-centered proclaiming leaders, without doctrinally sound leaders, there leaves this vacuum, this void for which false teaching and, and false beliefs come in. People are going to believe something. You know, have you ever thought about that? There is nobody on this planet that doesn't believe something, right? Like everybody believes something. Everybody believes something about life. They believe something about death. They believe something about heaven. If they believe in a heaven, they believe something about hell. If they believe in a hell or judgment, they, they believe something about, everybody's believing something. And so when you don't have the right thing, what are you going to have? You have a void that just sucks up the wrong things, all right? And, and so Paul's answer to false teaching and false doctrine is solid leaders who will consistently preach and teach and correct and rebuke in solid scriptural gospel truth. The answer to false teaching is to raise up a congregation of dads and of moms and of small group leaders and of Sunday school teachers who, who, are, who are sharp in their discernment and who are able to spot a lie a mile away and who are committed to proclaiming and saturating the people around them with the truth, okay? That's, that's Paul's answer. That's what he's telling Titus to do, okay? Now, the, he, he says, appoint leaders. We just spent two weeks looking at that, and, and now he gives kind of the reason why. Verse 10, why? Because there are many, okay, many, lots of people, many, this is verse 10, who are, and, th and then he gives some, some descriptive words here, insubordinate. In other words, they, they, they do not submit to the authority of the scriptures, okay? Uh, you, you'll find two groups of people today. You'll find one group of people that, that, that basically is over the Bible. This, this is their theology. I am over the Bible. I will tell you what I believe is true in this book. 
I'll, I'll tell you what I believe is false. I'll tell you what I'm going to live by, what I'm not going to live by. In other words, they are above the authority of the Bible. You find these people saying things like, well, my Bible said, or I, God, my God wouldn't do this. Like, like they're above him. They're actually telling God what is right, what is wrong, what they'll accept, what they don't. And then the other kind of person is one who has the Bible above them. Uh, they're the kind of person who says, like, I am submitting to the authority of the Scriptures. And so Paul says, there are many who are insubordinate. They will not submit to the authority of the Scriptures. The second descriptive word there in verse 10 is empty talkers, okay? Lots of talking, very little truth. Lots of talking, very little life transformation. A phrase we're going to come back to again and again and again in, in, in this message, and, and really in Titus in general, is Paul's own testimony in, in verse 1 and 2, where he says what he's about. He says, I'm about the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Okay, one of the ways that you know truth is that truth changes people. It changes their lives. It accords with godliness. The truth of God that transforms people. All right, and, and so he describes this other group of people who are insubordinate. They don't submit to the scriptures. They are empty talkers in the in the reality that they are not transformed. Whatever they know did not accord to godliness. It did not result in godliness. And then finally, he describes them as deceivers. Okay, that's all in verse ten. There, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Okay, deceivers for a particular purpose. Verse eleven says for shameful gain. Okay, look at verse 11. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay, now what is shameful gain? Well, that's something in it for you, right? It could be financial gain. It could be power. It could be control. It could be reputation. It could be notoriety. It could be so that people would make much of you. But for whatever reason, whatever their, their gain is, they're, 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 they're teaching wrong things for their own Influence. All right. Now, how, how may that look? Let, by the way, let me let me show you some other passages in the scripture that talk about this very same thing. By the way, Second Timothy is the book right before Titus. First Timothy is the book right before that, and we're going to spend a bunch of time in both of those books today because they're both written by Paul to pastors, okay? Timothy's in Ephesus, Titus is in Crete, and, and so they're, they're dealing with a lot of the same things, all right? So 2 Timothy, just like one page in my Bible prior to Titus 1, in verse four, chapter 4, uh, verse 3 and 4, uh, says this says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into, off into myths. In other words, people usually have some kind of motive for their, their believing the wrong things. All right, so let's, let's kind of play that out in our minds, maybe, maybe just hypothetically here. So for instance, if teachers want to gain power and influence over other people, if they want to gain maybe even money, Okay? If somebody wants your money, then, then what, what, what would be a good theology to teach there? Well, it would be a theology of a gospel of an easy life, a gospel of, of wealth and health. It's actually called something in our day, isn't it? It's called the prosperity gospel, right? And it goes something like this. Hey, listen to me, guys. I'm going to tell you I've got the key for, for you guys to be able to live a rich, comfortable, healthy life and overcome all the problems and difficulties in your life, all right? Now, if I'm telling you that, man, that's appealing, isn't it? Like, like that, that's appealing. I, in fact, if you buy into that, I've kind of got you, don't I? I've kind of, you know, you, you're, you're beholden to me. Uh, you're you're going to want to listen to me. You're going you're to want to give money to me. You're going to want to invite me over, right? 
If someone can show you how to be rich, healthy, comfortable, popular, heal you, okay, you're going to listen to that guy and you're going to follow that guy. You might even buy him a jet. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, it happens, right? If you've watched the, the American Gospel that, that's, uh, that's on, uh, used to be on Netflix, but they, I think they took it off uh, because of this. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, so again, let's play it out another way. Let's say a teacher wants to promote his own superiority over other people. Okay, so teacher wants you to know, hey, hey, I've got the truth. You don't have the truth. You got to listen to me um, because I've, I've arrived at a level that you're not at. Okay, you know what he's going to do? He's going to preach a gospel of law. He's going to preach a Jesus, here's what I call this, a Jesus plus gospel. Okay, so it's like I'm preaching you Jesus, but also, you know, we're going to add in so it's Jesus plus whatever this is that I'm better than you at. Okay, and you got to look to me at. And when you don't measure up, I'm going to remind you that you don't measure up. I'm going to keep you under my thumb. And and if, and if you try to back out of this deal, we're kicking you out of the club. Almost all Jesus plus gospels have a kicking you out of the club element to it. Like we're the only ones. And and if you don't do it our way, then you're out of the club and you're lost. Okay, or maybe for instance, if a teacher wants you to live wants to live a life of sin, so maybe maybe you got a, a gospel teacher who's saying, "Hey, I, I really like to live a pretty loose life." Well, he's going to preach a type of grace that doesn't transform, a type of grace that that forgives but does not captivate the heart, does not transform the will, does not cause you to be more like Jesus. It, it's a it's a free grace, it's a free atonement that doesn't have any transforming element to it. And on and on we could go. But for whatever reason there, there is a shameful game. They deceive for a shameful game. And then he goes on with one other descriptor word here, or descriptive phrase here in verse 10. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. Now that probably tips us off that Titus is probably dealing with some Jewish people um, who, who were what, what has come to known, the, the phrase commonly used for these folks, is the Judaizers. You're not going to find that in the Bible. It's a phrase that we've kind of come up with, not we at Lincoln Avenue, but Christian culture has come up with to describe these guys. And basically, they, they were this, this kind of Jesus plus group that was like, well, yeah, you, you got to have Jesus. He's the Messiah, but you've also got to become a Jew, Okay. So, so they were all about circumcision, okay? They were all about, because that was kind of the sign of the covenant. And, and so they were all about, you had to be circumcised. Or if a Gentile, that, that's us, right? If you were come to Jesus, well, you got, you got to have the food laws and you got to be circumcised. You got to do all these things. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Galatians, there's a, a great story of, or an account of, of how Peter had come to realize that, hey, it, there isn't a Jesus plus gospel. It's a Jesus alone gospel. And, and so everybody, Jew, Gentile, Roman, American, Chinese, whoever it is, that you can come to, uh, you can come to God simply through Jesus Christ. And Peter had embraced that, right? And so they're, they're at this Gentile gathering. I think they're at Antioch, and they're, they're eating. They're having a big meal, probably having some pork chops, maybe having some bacon. I don't know. Peter's probably living it up for the first time in his life, eating, eating some, uh, uh, some bacon, uh, some sausage. I, I, I don't, that's kind of the way I picture it. And all of a sudden, in comes these people from Jerusalem, these Judaizers. All of a sudden, Peter real slyly gets up from the table and kind of walks over away from the Gentiles, away from everybody else. And man, Paul calls him out. He, he calls him out. Now, Peter hadn't said anything that we know of, but Peter's posture was, was supporting this idea that, hey, you guys can't be real Christians until you become one of us. And Paul's like, man, we're going to stop that right now. 
And, and, and so probably Titus is dealing with some folks that were in that camp. And, and here's what he says. So basically this is who he's dealing with. And he says this. He says, these people must be, verse, verse 11, silenced. Okay, I know that sounds kind of brutal, okay, Paul's not talking about any kind of uh, assassination or anything here, okay, he's talking about this kind of doctrine, this kind of teaching, this kind of, uh, of lie has to be kept from, from corrupting the, the church. Now, Paul also describes the people that he is, he is ministering to in Crete, okay, this is kind of a funny phrase, uh, but he says in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, from everything I've read here, Paul's not like taking a mean shot at these folks, like this was actually what they said about themselves, okay? So one of their prophets that they all respected and all knew, you know, in Crete had said this years and years and years ago. It became kind of one of the sayings about Cretan people that, that they were known for being liars. They were known for being evil beasts. It's kind of a, a phrase that means like a wild and like untamable, okay? So again, not they don't submit well uh, and, and, and lazy gluttons. So they're, they're known for their indulgence, all right? Um Probably not a whole lot different than American culture today, honestly. Uh, when, when you think about lying, I, I think we may have, we may have got a first place uh, award for that uh, just this last year, you know, if, if you think about lies made in the American culture. So anyway, a culture maybe similar to ours, I don't know. But, but basically Paul is saying, man, this is what we're dealing with. You, you've got to rebuke sharply those people so they will be sound in the faith. Now, what is Paul aiming at here? What Paul is simply aiming at is that they would have genuinely transformed hearts, okay? That's the thing that the gospel always aims at. The gospel does not aim at giving you some rules so that you can try to be better, okay? That, that's a Jesus plus gospel. That is a legalistic gospel. We're gonna talk more about that here toward the end of this message. But that, that's never where the Bible is aiming at. The Bible always aims at an inside out uh, strategy, okay? The Bible aims to change your heart with the truth of the gospel by believing in Jesus, by yielding to the Holy Spirit so that you have a heart change. And once you have a heart change, that begins to work itself out in a transformation of every pocket and corner of the rest of your life, okay? So look at verse 15. Uh, Paul says this, he says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. So, so again, Paul is aiming at an inside out transformation. So he's saying, man, if, if your heart is right, if your heart is pure, if your heart is changed, you know, everything is going to be pure. But if your heart is defiled, okay, if, 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 you're, if you're unbelieving on the inside, that, that's going to make everything wrong on the outside. And he uses this idea of conscience, which by the way, happens a lot when you're talking about false teaching because false teaching makes your conscience malfunction, okay? Um, when, when you think about how your conscience works, it's like that, that warning light in your car, you know, where when your car gets too hot, there's a warning light that comes on and says, hey, you're, you're in danger here, like your engine's in danger, or like if you run the thing out of oil, there's going to be a light that comes on. So it's like this warning light warning you that something is wrong, okay? You should have that. We all actually have a conscience, all right? Everybody, I, believer, unbeliever, everybody has this, this guilt inside of them when they do something wrong or when they're about to do something wrong, okay? Now, when 
when you become a believer, you actually add to that the Holy Spirit who begins to shape your conscience, who begins to, to serve as a convictor of sin and a revealer of righteousness. And now when you start believing the truth of God's word, you know what that does? That begins to shape and form your conscience so that that thing begins to work really well, okay? But here's the thing. False teaching will make your, your, your conscience to malfunction. Let me, let me show you a passage in 1 Timothy 4. So again, a couple pages back. So 2 Timothy is the, first, the next book back. And then 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Listen to this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by deceiving themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's false teaching. Okay, then look at verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. All right, you know what it means to sear something, right? Like, like you burn it to the point where it has no feeling, right? You, it's like callousing something, all right? And, and, and so Paul is describing this reality that false teaching, it messes with, it calluses over your conscience, it keeps that red light. It's like, I don't know if you've ever done this. This has got something the Dirks family would do. Like the, the light is on in your car for a long time and you can't really figure out what it is. So you put a piece of tape over it. Anybody ever do that? You know? And you're just like, yeah, I'm not going to look at that anymore. You know? Uh, that, that's exactly what false teaching does. To, to your conscience. It's, it's like you, you put this callus over your, you sear your conscience so that the thing doesn't alert you anymore when something's wrong, okay? Now, today, uh, I'm sorry, I just didn't know how to do this fairly without this, but today's gonna be a offend everybody kind of a day, okay? Uh, just because false teaching, I, I felt like I could do this very generically or I could actually try to be helpful. I'm gonna try to be helpful, but in doing so, um, we're, we're gonna have to just say some hard things, all right? So let, let me give you an example of callus over your, your, your conscience. In recent years, there's been this strong push by the culture. Sorry, I'm going to be looking at text, okay? All right, no, I'm just looking for the picture is what I'm looking for. Uh, in recent years, there's been this strong push by the culture and, and by a lot of false teachers from within the church, okay, to say that homosexuality is not a sin. Now, that's just not true, right? As you look through your Bible, you're going to see that fornication, you know, sleeping with somebody who is not your spouse, okay, heterosexually, that's a sin. Uh, sleeping with somebody before marriage, okay, so all these sexual sins, and within those sexual sins is homosexuality. It, it's not like in this category by itself. It's in the rest of the categories of sexual sin. What people have tried to do is to pull it out and say, well, okay, yeah, adultery's wrong, and, and foreign, and, you know, all the, but, but we're going to pull this one out. Sometimes they just, like, gloss over all of them, actually. But a lot of times they'll pull that one out, and they'll say, well, you know, no, no, the Bible didn't really mean that. Or Paul, he was homophobic. Or the culture was so broken that, you know, God couldn't protect his word, and so you have parts of the Bible that are not true. And, and I've even heard horrible things about, like going back in the Old Testament, finding the friendship of David and Jonathan and saying, yeah, see, those guys, they, they, they were homosexuals, you know? Which, you know, looking at David's life and the struggles he had later on in his life would seem to be really preposterous to me. Okay, but anyway, like, like just corrupting and bending and, and, and misshaping the word of God. Now, what's, what has been the result of that in our culture? That red light doesn't come on with a lot of people, Right? Like that red light no longer comes on. Their conscience no longer it says, oh, wow, I, I'm doing something I shouldn't do here. And so false teaching will create problems in your conscience. Look at verse 16. A couple more, a couple more descriptive words here of, of what false teaching does. 
Verse 16, right at the end of our passage, it says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, so they, they profess to know God, but, but they deny him by their works. Now, if you've been here the last two or three weeks, you know what we've talked over and over again, especially when we're talking about a leader. Okay, so a leader is somebody who not only can speak the truth, but also you see the truth in their life. And if you don't see the truth in their life, then they're not fit to be a leader. Because why? Because remember back up at, our, at the beginning of our, 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 our book here in Titus, Paul says, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth brings godliness. Believing the truth about Jesus. Okay, so let's just, let's just be specific here. Believing in the sovereignty of God, believing in the righteous judgment of God upon sin, believing in the deity and humanity and the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, believing in the exclusivity of Jesus. In other words, that he is the only way. Believing that all the world was created by and is sustained by Jesus and for Jesus. Believing that Jesus is life. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Believing in the indwelling Holy Spirit. Believing in salvation by grace through faith. Believing in repentance of sin. It trans transforms a person you can't truly believe those things and not be changed and not have good works coming out of your life James said it really well in James chapter 2 where he said faith without works is a dead faith okay you can have a verbal you know I believe something but but if there's no works to accompany that if it doesn't transform your life then it is a dead faith if you read second Peter 2 second Peter 2 is a really interesting passage on false teaching we don't have time to go through it but in second Peter 2 you have almost an entire chapter devoted to false teaching and Paul or Peter I'm sorry Peter hardly at all mentions the teaching you know you know what he mentions over and over and over again the broken lifestyle of the teachers how they're given over to sensuality and greed and, and, and all, all, these, all these things that shouldn't be pred. They're not Christ-like. And, and, and so what, what Paul is saying here is that, that truth changes you. It makes you fit for every good work. But if you're believing the wrong things, you're going to be unfit for every good work. So, okay. I'm going to shift gears here. All right. So what should we do with false teaching? Okay, how should we handle this in the church? That, that's kind of the sticky thing we want to deal with today. So number one, first of all, make sure that you're dealing with false teaching, okay? Um, I, I, I need to say something I, I think is going to be really helpful, and I want you to really take heed to it. The majority of situations where there is something said, either in a conversation or in a teaching that is false, the majority of those I've found simply need clarification. Okay? Do you hear that? They just need clarification. Um, oftentimes, somebody says something that they don't really mean to say, or they say it in a way that's easily misunderstood, or they say something that was taken out of context, or they press a point too far, or, or maybe they just haven't thought about the implications of what they were saying. Man, man, this is a common occurrence. I mean, just think about how often we misunderstand each other just about groceries, right? Like, 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 I mean, that, that's common, right? Like just, just everyday stuff that we thought, well, I thought you said you were. No, I thought you said, you know, like we misunderstand each other. We're not, we're not super communicators, okay? And, and, and so I can't tell you how many times that somebody's come to me. This actually happened this week. Somebody came and said, hey, man, I, I think these guys said this. And, like, I actually haven't dealt with it. I, I sent another guy to deal with it. But I am 99% sure they didn't say that. I mean, I know these guys. And, and I'm sure that it was just in the, in the context, in the 
in the, in the moment, I, I just can't believe that that was actually said or meant in that way. I believe that it was said. I just don't, don't I, I question whether it was meant in that way. I mean, this happens all the time in Sunday school. When you have Sunday school discussions, or even in our, our DT groups, you know, somebody will say something, and, and there's no need to, like, push the chair back and say, you're a false teacher, you know, shun from the church. I, 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 most of the time, what you need to do is say, okay, now what I heard you say was this. Is, is that what you meant? Because... Don't you think it's it's this way? And a lot of people at times, most all the time, people will be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's why, that's why I, mean, I meant this, yeah. So so first of all, seek clarification. Um, make sure you're not being misunderstood and make sure you don't misunderstand other people. I've had the, the terrible experience before of, of Sunday afternoon opening up Facebook and seeing somebody post and say, Pastor Jason, I, I really loved what he said today. He said this. And I'm like, I did not say that. <laughs> so clarify. Clarify. Okay, number two. Once you are sure there is false doctrine, now you need to be clear about what exactly you're dealing with. Okay? I, I've found it helpful this is by no means an exhaustive way to think of it, but I found it helpful to look at, at, at this in three different ways, okay? Um, number one, is this a lie about the gospel, okay? Number two, is this an, ad- an addition or a subtraction to the gospel? Or number three, is this a distraction or replacement for the gospel, okay? And we're gonna go through those things, okay? But number one, is this a lie about the gospel, okay? So in other words, there are times where what you're dealing with is a lie about the gospel itself, okay? A lie about Jesus, a lie about faith, a lie about grace, a lie about repentance, okay? So, so examples here. Mormons teach that, that as we are right now, so Jesus once was, and as Jesus is now, so we can be, Okay? That's a loose translation of a couple different Mormons, Lorenzo Snow and then uh, even Joseph Smith said very similar things. But what, what, what they teach about that is Jesus is not the eternal Trinitarian God. Okay, now what the Bible says is that Jesus is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit, existed from eternity past. Mormons are going to teach you, no, 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 Jesus, Jesus is not. He, he's this eternal spirit being who's the brother of Lucifer and he worked his way into his present position and you can do the same. And, and you can actually work your way into having your own planet with your celestial wife and populate that planet forever and ever. Okay, that is a lie about the gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses reject the Trinity. Again, they teach that there is no hell. There is no judgment. The worst that can happen to you is annihilation. They have these kind of tiers of everything from kind of super paradise for the 144,000 down to basically you, that you're just annihilated. The modern prosperity gospel. Faith in Jesus brings health and wealth and easy, prosperous life. The prize is the is the prosperity. uh, The prize in the prosperity gospel is not Jesus. It's a healthy body and a full bank account and a life that's not hard. Okay, those are all distortions. Those are lies about the gospel itself. So, are, are you dealing with a lie about the gospel, or number two, are you dealing with an addition or a subtraction to the gospel? Okay. So, so let's talk about legalism or, or these Judaizers, these, um, uh, what's he say, Jewish Miz or whatever, he, however he describes that. Oh, no, he says, uh, especially those of the circumcision party. So probably what he's dealing with there is this Jesus plus gospel, okay? Now, now let me give you a definition of legalism, okay? Legalism is rules kept by our own power to earn God's favor, okay? 
you could say it this way, rules added to faith beyond Scripture that make you a real Christian, okay, that make you a full, complete Christian. So those are kind of two variations of legalism. The one says, hey, yep, yep, it's Jesus and this, Jesus plus this. The other says, yeah, 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 Jesus, but if you really want to be on the top, if you really want to be a a good Christian, if you really want to be a faithful Christian, then it's plus this, and it's added to whatever legalistic rule it is. Now, I I think we need to pause here because this one is the one that we probably have in the last 20, 30 years been most susceptible to, okay? And and we're most susceptible to it because it seems appealing, right? You you, you want people to be holy. You want their lives to be changed. And, And so a lot of times people will just bypass Jesus. They'll bypass the Holy Spirit, and they'll make some rules. Now, the problem with that is that doesn't actually have any power to transform you. I want to take you to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 just is is a great little description here of legalism. In Colossians 2.16, it says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head. The head is Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. In other words, the only way you grow is through Jesus, okay? And then just skip down to the last verse there, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have no power in actually stopping your sinful flesh. In other words, you can be really strict. You can have a really strict rule about dress, okay? Um, I grew up in a community that had really strict rules about dress, like, okay, women, you can only wear these things. Guys, you can only wear these. You, you got to have a beard. You got you to gotta look this way. You can do all that and have a murderous, bitter, unforgiving heart. True? Like, when putting on clothes does not affect your heart, does it? Like, like, like nobody's, like, mad and, and, and unforgiving and furious and got hate in their heart, and they put on slacks or a dress, and they're like, it's all gone. You know, I mean, that's got no power to affect your righteousness. You can comply with a rule. It's not going to change your heart, okay? You can strictly obey a rule about fasting or about church attendance or rated R movies or secular music or hairstyles or absence from alcohol. And you can be the most prideful, arrogant, conceited man alive. You can not drive cars or hold to the old ways or eat certain foods and be a horrible gossip or verbally abusive husband or neglectful wife. Those rules don't actually break the power of sin. Now, again, I'm not saying that we don't need rules. Please, I want you to dress modestly, okay? If you come in here naked, we're, we're going to send you out, okay? Uh, like, like that, that's just embarrassing. Don't do it, okay? Um, but but that, that's not your sanctification, okay? That's not how you break the power. So again, Christianity is an inside out, right? It changes you from the inside, okay? Putting on different clothes, watching different, that, that doesn't, that has no power to transform you. Sin is a heart problem. Sin is a problem that you got to seek Jesus. You got to believe Jesus. You got to trust and follow Jesus. You got to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. You got to repent of sin. You got to believe Christ about sin. Jesus crushes the power of sin because he exposes the lies of sin. And he himself is better. You see, this is this is when you start killing sin is when you grab on to this reality that whatever you're being tempted with, Jesus is better than that. He, he is better than that. That's when all of a sudden your heart lets go of that stuff. 
But you don't want it. Because Jesus is better. Sin will promise you justice and revenge. It'll promise you meaning and purpose and self-promotion and success. Sin promises you satisfaction and lust and pornography and sensuality. Sin promises security and significance and money. It's a lie. And when you believe Jesus, like really believe him, like, okay, I believe you, Jesus. That is all that stuff's a lie. And the power of it is broken. And then, then when you, you go to the next step and say, not only is that a lie, but Jesus, you're the one who will not disappoint me. You're the one who will satisfy my soul. You're the one who will bring justice, who will bring meaning, who will bring purpose, who will bring satisfaction, who will bring security, who will bring significance. And that's when the power of sin is broken. So legalism appears to promote godliness because it like tries to strong arm people into being righteous, but it actually, it actually just opens the door to us not being sanctified because we make our own rules. We, we ignore, we make our own rules and ignore following Jesus, right? Because here's how legalism works best. You get a pick. Okay, so if I'm gonna pick, I'll just tell you what I'm gonna pick. Here we go. In order to be a super Christian, in order to be really spiritual, you don't gamble. You attend church services, like all of them. You don't buy expensive vehicles, okay? That's flashy, that's, that's wasteful. You don't cuss, and you sing loud in church. Now, why did I pick those? Because those are all easy for me. See, I picked ones that are easy for me. I, I have never in my life been tempted to gamble. Like, like even as a lost drunkard, like, I, I, I was too cheap. You know, if, if I got seven bucks, I was going to buy a 12-pack of beer. I was not going to go gamble. You know, I, I like, like it just has, like I'm saying, in my worst state, I, I was never tempted by gambling. Like it seems like a ridiculously dumb idea. And, and then now that I've even got saved, like I, I don't want to take, I, I, I'm afraid of where the money comes from if I'd win. So like it's just not a problem for me. So I'm going to pick that one. I'm going to pick church attendance. I like being here. I'm, I'm going to pick singing. I like to sing. Right. See what I'm saying? Well, okay, so if that's what I'm picking, then those are my boxes that I check. Well, you know what that does? That leaves the door wide open for me to be prideful, for me to be a bully, for me to lose my temper, for me to lust after a beautiful woman in my heart or manipulate people for gain or never share my faith with anyone or be a vicious gossip or be critical of everyone or tear people down with, with, with my self-righteous better than look. But I didn't gamble. And I was at church and I sang loud. Okay, do you see the, fo- the folly of legalism? Instead, you need to love Jesus and listen to Jesus and follow Jesus. Man, he's, he's really thorough about fixing all that stuff, okay? He's not gonna let you get away with, well, I don't gamble, but I do hate that person and I ain't gonna stop hating him. Man, he will not let you off, He will be on you about that. Trust me, Jason, trust me. How do you know whether your works are by faith or a part of a legalistic structure of self-righteousness and achievement? Well, um, that's a big question. That's a whole sermon or a series of sermons. But let me just throw some stuff out. Ask yourself, do you love the Lord? Do you love him? Do you love his word? Do you love his will? Do you delight in him? And I, I think that's a, I think that's a crucial key. Do you delight in him? Man, I've seen some staunch, legalistic, I never do this, I never do this, I never do this. But man, I'm telling you, when you talk to them, 
It was like, you love Jesus? Yeah, I love him. Amazing grace, how sweet to sound. It's like, I'm not convinced, you know? Are you hearing his voice? Are you convicted of sin? Like, do you live in this continual, he's speaking to you and pointing things out and empowering you to believe and to be transformed? Are you, are you, are you making spiritual progress? Are you using your works to compare and exalt over others? Is your whole Christian life this? Hey, 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 you, 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 you're out of line, you're out of line, you're out of line, you're out. Is that your whole Christian life? Man, that's spooky because Jesus didn't live that way. Okay, third. Okay, so is it a lie about the gospel? Is it an addition or subtraction to the gospel? Thirdly. Is it a distraction or replacement to the gospel? Okay, so no, notice some things in, in Titus here. Um, verse 14, he says, um, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. Okay, um, let, let me take you to some Timothy passages. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 and 4. Um, listen to this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness. There it is again, the teachings that accord with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He, is, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Um, 1 Timothy 1.6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussion. Are you seeing a theme there? Like, be careful of like majoring on the minors, okay? Be careful of, of like the, this, this, this distraction from the gospel where people like are, are infatuated with this silly, I call it silly, it wouldn't be silly to them, but with this stuff that's not gospel, okay? Um, I, some people live their life arguing, they live their Christian life arguing over stuff that honestly, in my, in my mind, has very little bearing on things. Uh, man, I'm telling you, whenever I'm in a room and all of a sudden the discussion goes to angels and um, dead relatives, you know, giving you signs from the beyond or just, man, I'm out. Like, dude, I'm out quick. Um, I, honestly, here, if I haven't offended you yet, this is going to be it. Honestly, when, when it goes to politics saving us all, like, I, I, I can do a little bit of it, but I, I'm just not there very long because it's not the gospel. John MacArthur, I was reading him, and, and he talks about these Jewish myths, and he talks about that evidently, I, mean, I don't know this, but he said historically it's true, that the Jews had this numerical system that they had assigned all the letters in the Old Testament, and so numbers were really big, you know, and so, man, I can just imagine. I've actually been in some of those discussions where, like, you know, people are like, well, this number and this number and this year and this, you know, and, like, you know, like I'm lost in about two minutes, you know, and, like, I'm just not going to do that. It's a distraction from the gospel. Majoring on minor things. Man, do you remember Jesus dealing with the Pharisees? Like, like he, would, he would heal somebody, you know? Like somebody's paralyzed, and, and he just causes them to walk. And the Pharisees are over there saying, did he wash his hands before supper? I'm not making that up. It's in there, isn't it? 
I don't think he washed. Did he use soap? Was it 30 seconds, you know? Was he clean? Hey, you're, you're fair, you're, your disciples, wa- eat, they eat with unwashed hands. Or hey, this was the Sabbath day. Or, or you remember the one discussion about, hey, we saw your disciples, they picked some heads of grain as they were walking through somebody's field on Sabbath. Man, don't be a person who lives your life on these vain discussions. It's a distraction to the gospel. Okay, so know what you're dealing with. Okay, now, um, real quickly, for real, real quickly, um, questions, all right? Is this, is this outside or inside the church? That makes a difference, okay? Uh, why does it make a difference? Well, there's all kinds of lies about Islam and Hinduism and, and the world that are incredibly deadly, but, but, they're, but they're outside, okay? And, and, and we should treat those differently then when somebody from within Lincoln Avenue is speaking in the name of Jesus or the Bible. Okay, do you see how those are two different things? Like, like Hinduism has this whole wacko uh, system of India being the center of the world and, and reincarnation and karma and all that. Okay, all right, that, that, those are all a bunch of lies. But even more dangerous is when Jason stands up and says, Here's what the Bible says in the name, you know, and it's wrong. Okay, that, that, in other words, that's a more serious thing. Okay? So when it's outside the church, a lot of times the proper response is simply avoidance. When it's inside the church, verse 11 says you must silence. Okay? So there must be a, a, a move to stop the false teaching from, being, from happening to the congregation. Okay? Other questions to ask. Is this a privately held belief or is this a publicly taught belief by a teacher, leader, influencer? Okay? The more influential the person and the more well-known the teaching, the, the, more, the more steps you must take, the more aggressive you must take. Okay? So for instance, in 1 Timothy 5, um, we see an example of an elder. That's a guy like me who's like preaching from the pulpit and I'm saying something wrong. Okay? So in, in verse 19, it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except... Uh, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So make sure, make sure again, clarification, people heard that right. Okay, verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, so you, you come to me privately, hey, pastor, did we hear that right? You know, and I'm like, yeah, you heard me right. Yeah, that's exactly right, okay? Okay, verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest may stand in fear. That's when somebody's got to get up in the pulpit and say, okay, you heard what Pastor Jason said. It was wrong. We've talked to him. We've tried to clarify. He's persisting in it. He won't repent. So we're going to stand up publicly and tell you what he said was wrong, okay? I don't think you need to do that with a confused new believer, okay? Someone that's a brand new Christian, they're trying to figure out the Bible, and they say something wrong. I don't think you drag them up by the ear and say, all right, did you guys hear what he said at McDonald's, okay? You know, no, they didn't. They weren't there, you know? Like, uh, that doesn't need to happen. So, so know, again, know what you're dealing with. No. No, be, be sensitive to wisdom, okay, in, in the church. It, it, those are different situations. Maybe you have a little-known conviction by an attender, okay? You deal with that different than you do a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader. All right, so Titus said, or Paul says to Titus, rebuke, okay? In other words, construct, instruct them. Um, the very last um, thing that would happen would, would be to call them out publicly, okay? That would be the last it would have to be a leader. It would have to be something that was well-known. But we see it happening in the Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Paul calls out some guys, and he says, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So he actually calls these guys out for the good of the church. It may be appropriate in that setting when it, the heresy is that well-spread. Okay. Other times it might be appropriate just to talk to their circle of influence or to their small group. 
okay? And then in the most serious of unrepentant cases, there's a separation from them as a body. Final thing here in Titus verse 13, make sure that our heart is always to restore. Verse 13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. What, what, what's, what do we want? Man, we want, we want people to be sound in the faith. Paul calls out Peter in Galatians 2 publicly. And he, right, Peter's a leader. <laughs> he is the leader. And he's, he's, by, he's at least showing with his life this, this Jesus plus gospel. He calls him out publicly. What's Peter do? Peter submits to that evidently, which is beautiful. And, and he's restored. Okay? 2 Timothy 4.2 says to use great patience here. It says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Whoop, that's not right. That's 1 Timothy, sorry. 2 Peter 4.2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Complete patience and teaching. If you go back a chapter or so there, 2 Timothy 2.25, correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance. Man, that's what we want. We're not trying to embarrass people. We're not trying to scold people. We're saying, man, believing the wrong thing is deadly. And so, so we want to, initially at least, come in gently and, and patiently with the truth. I, w- I want to leave you with a quote from John Piper. This is to, to leaders, and I, I love this. He says, the last thing I would say is to let your teaching be so powerful in clarifying the greatness and beauty and the worth of God's truth that your people will smell error before it infects their lives. The shape of error is always changing. You can't preach enough negative sermons to stay ahead of it, and you don't have to. The best protection against the darkness of error is the light of truth. Man, I I believe that. And and I think if you've been here long enough, you know that I, I don't spend my time bringing up everybody else. Uh, I know we did some today, but I felt like that was the only way to do this right. Okay, but that's not, that's not what we're gonna do most of the time. Most of the time what we're gonna do is magnify the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because the more you have of that, the more you'll be able to smell when something's funky, okay? If, if, you've, been, if you've been eating five-star restaurants, sirloin steak, okay, Whenever someone pulls something out of the fridge, it's a little rancid. You're gonna you're gonna be like, yeah, this don't smell good. Okay, if all you've ever eaten is garbage, you, you might be fine with it. Okay, so we we want to give people the good stuff. Let's pray, Father. We ask you to help us, Lord, with this um, this whole issue of of sound teaching. God, please help us to be a people who give the gospel in in clarity and in beauty and in power uh, that we give it over and over again, Lord, please. God, make our church that church. Make us those people. In Jesus' name, amen.